Bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we have been enriched by music. We have heard your word. And Lord, for these next few moments, we pray that your spirit will continue to tarry with us. Lord, we ask that you will help us to set aside the distractions of the week, that we will put down the worries of our life, that we will be open to your spirit working in our hearts, that we will respond and that we will leave this place encouraged and challenged to be more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you heard that 38% of Americans won't drink Corona beer because they're afraid of contracting the Corona virus? <laughs> on February 28th, 38% was trending on Twitter and people were lambasting those that thought Corona was linked to the Corona virus. Now, of course, when something looks and smells too good to be true, you have to do some investigating. And after all, the news agencies jumped on this and were frothing at the mouth to be the first to report this, someone did a little more research and they found that there was, in fact, a PR company behind this poll. And they found that this PR company had biased and lent uh, some of the questions to push people toward this answer. They found that the instrument was actually deeply flawed and had many things that a real instrument would never have included. Reflecting on the virality of this moment, political scientist Yasha Monk asked this question. He wanted to know how could an obscure poll, one that even if it had been true, so he says, if this was even true, how could it have captured the imagination of so many Americans? And his conclusion was this. A lot of Americans already think that their fellow citizens are not very smart. And so he continues, the real reason a fake finding could have spread so far so quickly is that it confirmed the prejudices about the world that many have held all along. Family systems theorist Patricia Love speaking about prejudice within marriage and close relationship calls this monocular vision. And you may be thinking, what is monocular vision? I'll tell you, it's the opposite of binocular vision which may not be particularly helpful, but hopefully we'll be able to figure out together because really this is the crux of the sermon this morning, the difference between monocular vision and the difference between binocular vision. So binocular vision, according to Patricia Love, is this ability to hold multiple perspective concurrently within your mind. Monocular vision is the tendency to see the world in black and white. It's the tendency to see the world entirely from our own frame of reference and have a chronic inability to see the world from anyone else's frame of reference. Monocular vision creates two-dimensional caricatures where 
binocular vision allows us to have a complex and uh, multi-dimensional vision of the world. It moves from having flat views to having multi-dimensional views. The problem with monocular vision, though, is that it tends to lead to prejudice. And if I was to ask this morning, how many of you hold prejudices? And if all of us did not put our hand up, I would know that some of you are lying. Every single one of us has prejudice. All of us. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter how old you are, what state you're from. It doesn't matter who you are, all of us have prejudice. We may suspect some of us sitting here that women are not as suited for analytical work as men. There may be some of us who have a hunch that men aren't as emotionally equipped as women to deal with certain nurturing activities. Perhaps we harbor suspicions this morning that certain racial groups are genetically more predisposed toward criminality than other racial groups. Or perhaps there are people from certain parts of the world who just do better in some subjects than other people. We all have prejudice. There are some of us who sit here this morning and we believe that those who are on government assistance are actually just prone to laziness and are untrustworthy. Or perhaps are prejudiced following the scandal of the Astro Science Ceiling uh, saga is that there are no more honest baseball players in Houston. All of us hold prejudice. <laughs> and no one is excluded. If you are religious, you might have prejudice against those who are not like you. You might think that all Pentecostals are all spirit and speaking in tongues and don't give a jot about the Word of God. You might think that Catholics ignore the commandments, Baptists only preach hellfire sermons. And all of these prejudices, all of these monocular ways of viewing the world are in fact kindling. They are the stuff that the match of our prejudice strikes and ignites fires in our life. This is how monocular vision works. For those of us specifically who sit and identify as Adventists, I see all my people on the balcony, there are a whole host of you. For those of you who identify as being Adventist this morning, we have our own particular and peculiar prejudices that come out of having a monocular vision. For example, you may have met, and I'm sure there are not many of you who have met this person. In fact, this person may actually be mythical and not exist, but follow me and see if you've met someone like this. This individual is sure and positive that Jesus does not mind us wading in the water on Sabbath. But Jesus goes to DEFCON 5 if the water slips above our knees. We have things peculiar to ourselves. But the thing is, Adventists also have what I think can be called interpretive prejudice. And by that I mean we have because we grew out of a 20th century movement awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ, 
breathless with anticipation that he would part the skies, we have the ability to go to Matthew chapter 24 and to look and lick our lips and to devour the words of Jesus concerning the signs of the end. And sometimes in our zeal, our interpretive prejudice, we display prejudice concerning catastrophic events and we make material damage to the hope that we proclaim. Or to put it another way, how we engage information pertaining to the last days and to the end is often monocular vision. And so this morning, if you're joining us, you're going to find that we are going to look at this way of looking at the world, whether we are employing monocular vision or binocular vision and the differences it makes in our life. We do understand that we are in a time of history where we can both hear God's warning and God's summons to us to be a people of hope, to be a community of hope. And if you're joining us for the first time today, we are in a series during this winter called Together. And we have been looking at the contours and the corners of what it looks like to be in community as Adventists, to be in community as Christians, to be in community as followers of God. And today's sermon is titled, A Community of Hope. With that said, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Pick your phone up. If you're already on it, just double tap. You can come off Instagram for a hot second. Go to your Bible app. Switch over to Hebrews chapter 10. And let's read this together. Hebrews 10 verses 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so we come here to Hebrews and New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, painting broad strokes about the book of Hebrews, says that it was really written to a group of people uh, and designed to persuade Jewish Christians not to regress and go back to the Jewish ways of life, but to stay the course and to hold on to Jesus Christ. Now, the problem that they faced was that many of them in their life felt a lot of pressure to let go of being a Christian. If you were living in Rome at the time and you were a Jewish, you had certain protections from the Roman government. If you are a Christian, you are now just a small sect coming up, a sect that decided that you would not worship any other gods and you were frowned upon and life was difficult. And so the author of Hebrews tells them, even though it would be safer socially and it would be better economically, hold fast to what God has called you to. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, says this really interesting thing. It talks about not, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And I know this text because I've grown up in a church where it's important for us to come together. 
And so normally when I read Hebrews 25, I just know the first line, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And then he goes on, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day, capital D, approaching. And if you're reading this text, it may seem a little odd that in your translations, they have capitalized the word day. So what is this day that the author of Hebrews is speaking about? Well, elsewhere in the New Testament, we find the day as being a reference to the day of the Lord, being a reference to the last day. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 42, Jesus tells his followers, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So Jesus makes this link between the coming of the Lord and a certain day, and the author in Hebrews picks this up and says that we ought to be on watch because there is a day which is coming. And yet, when you read Matthew chapter 24, and you go earlier into the chapter, you find the place where us as Adventists are very comfortable and very familiar. Jesus Christ tells us that before uh, the day of the Lord comes, that there will be national strife, that there will be famines, there will be earthquakes, there will be persecution, there will be false prophets, and the love of many will grow cold. And because we are a people of hope, because we're a people who are looking forward and looking for Christ to part the clouds, Adventists are incredibly sensitive to catastrophic moments as being a harbinger for the last day. And so, if there's an earthquake in Puerto Rico, some people are like, there it is, Jesus is coming. Bushfires in Australia, oh, Jesus is coming. COVID-19, for sure Jesus is coming. Increased gun violence in Chicago, oh, that's a sign. For sure Jesus is coming. And what we do with this evidence is we place the sticks and the twigs, and then we put dry grass on the kindling, and we strike the match of certitude, and we engulf all of this information, and we say, see, categorically, the world is getting worse. We can see it in the news. We can see it when we listen to our favorite commentators. And this is proof positive we're in the last days and that Jesus is coming. Now, I find this line of reasoning problematic. Monocular. I remember a conversation with uh, a student, and you know what I mean when, uh, in fact, I heard this term. You probably knew it before I did. If someone is a lifer, what does that mean? Oh. You're like, prison. What is this? A lifer, a lifer. <laughs> so they went to grade school. They went to Adventist grade school. They went to academy. They went to college. They're a lifer right? Okay, we're on the same page now. So many confused faces looking at me. And so this young person was a lifer, went to grade school, went to uh, high school, went to college. And when I met him, he was basically a functional agnostic. Wasn't really sure that any of this stuff really mattered. 
Maybe there was a God there. Maybe there wasn't. And he was the kind of sharp person who would sit in church, um, and when the preacher was talking, he wouldn't just listen. He'd be on his phone, and he would fact-check while the preacher was talking. He wants to make sure what you're saying is true. You can't just stand up here, and just because you're a preacher, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. Just because my parents told me I'm going to take it. No, he used Google, and he fact-checked. And I remember a conversation with him, my friends in the balcony, where he said, you know, I have a real problem when we aggregate information about natural disasters, when we bring together catastrophic moments, and we say, this is proof that Jesus is coming. And so he would then take you to data that would argue against it. For example, you might look at this chart, which shows global deaths from natural disasters from 1900 to 2016. And when you look at this chart, you will see that whether it's volcanic activity, whether it's drought, whether it's mass movement that has come as a cause of natural disasters, whether it's landslides, extreme weather, extreme temperatures, floods, wildfires, or earthquakes, that the information seems to go against the assertion that more people are dying and that the world is getting worse. Next slide. You may look at this in another way when you look at global annual deaths from natural disasters by decade. And you see that, of course, in the 1920s, we had a huge number of people who were killed in droughts. But from the 1920s through to the 2010s, there is a precipitous decline in those people who are dying from natural disasters. And there may be somebody going, whoa, 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 hold on, you are out of your depth, and I probably am. And you may want to argue this data and show me other places that prove that actually, no, the world is getting worse, more people are dying, but that's the point. We can argue about it. The data is not conclusive. And in fact, seems to suggest the very opposite. Last week, I mentioned uh, Pinker from Harvard, who had written such a book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, showing the decline in war and the people who are dying because of things like this. And so this young man says, there is no way that I can believe that every single time something bad happens, this is proof positive. The world is just getting worse. And that because of this one disaster, Jesus is therefore coming back. If the data that we build our theological home and hope with is wonky, then the walls of our exigent apocalyptic warnings crumble. If our hope is built in proving that the world is categorically getting worse, that there are more disasters than when people come and show us data that says the opposite, our foundation crumbles. Okay, now there are definitely 
for sure some people who are saying, there is no way you really believe that. You want me to bring my child to Walla Walla University, a Seventh-day Adventist institution, and here you are questioning the last days and natural disasters. What is this? I got an amen. There is someone not happy. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. Verse 1 to 4, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed, heir of all things, through whom also he has made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all of the things by the world, by the word of his power, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become so much better than the angels, he has, by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us very clearly, my friends, that we are in the last days. And now this is going to make a completely different group of people feel uncomfortable. Hebrews chapter 1 says that since the resurrection of Christ, since the risen Lord went up to the right hand of the Father, that we have entered into a period of time that the Bible labels as the last days. And so after Hebrews, because it's important, after the author of Hebrews establishes the chronological position of the book of Hebrews, because this is Hebrews chapter 1. So he's saying, listen, listen, this entire book is set within the context of the fact that Christ has risen and we are now in the last days. And after the author goes through various beautiful images about Christ, we come to Hebrews chapter 10 and we don't find him pulling back saying, no, it's not really the last days. In fact, he doubles down and tells us that Not only is it the last days, but the day is approaching. That we're moving the needle closer to the terminal point of history. That we need to hold on unwaveringly, unswervingly to our hope. And when this author speaks about holding on to our hope as the needle moves closer to the terminal point of the history of the world, he is speaking about an object that does not move, that stays perpendicular regardless of how it's buffeted, of how it's persecuted, of how it's pushed. He says, don't swerve. And so as a community of hope, we don't swerve because we hold on to Christ, the object of our hope. And yet, for me, having grown up in the church and having seen what a myopic and monocular vision of simply acknowledging the truth that we are in the last days does, I think there has to be more. If all we ever do 
is speak about the last days, about the rush of time towards a terminal end, then we have only one lens. We are monocular in our vision. But we are called to be binocular. And so if the apocalyptic edge is Christ is coming, then what is the other? In Hebrews chapter 10, we will see it. Hebrews chapter 10 Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised it is faithful. And then look at verse 24. It seems an odd admonition when we're speaking about something so important as being in the last days and waiting for the day of the Lord. But listen to the author in verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love. And good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so this author is employing two lenses. He is employing, yes, the apocalyptic, but also the practical, grounded in this triad of faith, hope, and love. And I believe that as a community of hope, we must be a people who are aware of the chronology of Christ, but we also accept corporate responsibility to do the acts of Christ. Because Hebrews chapter 10 gives us both. Yes, the day is coming, but also spur each other, encourage each other to do acts of love. It's both. We must be a people aware of the chronology of Christ and also accepting our corporate mutual responsibility to do the acts of Christ. A community of hope lives with a binocular vision. When disasters strike, we know we're already in the last days. We know that the earth is wearing away like an old rag when the economy lurches and the earth ruptures and viruses are around us. Yes, things are not how they should be. We know that. We are moving east of Eden. And yet, as a community of hope, with this dual focus, with this binocular vision, we gather, we love, we have faith, We have hope. We listen to the divine summons that brings us face to face with the mutuality that God wants us to have with each other and with our neighbors. We hold on unswervingly to be more gentle fathers, stronger mothers, more patient neighbors, to be more committed humanitarians, to be ethical corporate analysts, to be more faithful professors, to be more loving students. Why? Because we live with a binocular vision of hope. And so we gather on Saturday and Wednesday and Monday. We hold to each other more, not less. We are more forgiven with each other, not less, because we see the day approaching. We understand that through mutual care for each other, we are able to give one another 
what we lack by ourselves, and we become a people ready for Christ and the world that He has promised. And what a promise it is. Revelation, speaking about this promise, paints an incredible and beautiful picture. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And you know, it was a few years ago I realized that having journeyed myself from having a monocular vision where I could spend hours looking at prophetic passages, looking at the signs, and looking down my nose at anyone else who was not as urgent as I was about Christ's coming, and then going to the other side and saying, well, you know, Christ has called us to be his hands and feet here, and really not having any kind of prophetic edge, that one of the things I had to wrestle with and perhaps as the church moves from those who have found too much emphasis placed on the last days and last events, that we may actually be in danger of being how I was a few years ago, where we really don't mind and don't, you know, we're not too fussed. If Jesus, if he comes, that would be cool. That would be nice. But, you know, can I finish college? Love to get married, a degree, first house, you know, hit my first six-figure salary, like, Jesus, give me a moment. Take your time, Jesus. Life is good. And I realized that this was because of where I lived. I lived in a world where you can, or in a country where you have the freedom to vote, to assembly, to worship. You are able to turn on a tap and get clean water. When your wife goes to the hospital, you don't really worry if she and the baby are going to die. You don't wake up at night and hear drones over your head. You don't worry if your child is going to school, they might be captured by guerrillas and enlisted in child armies. Life is easy. And I realized that my location had given me a monocular vision of comfort. Whereas in this world, there are millions, billions for whom the hope of Christ truly is the only hope that they have. And you might say, yeah, but I, don't, I live in Spokane. I live in Walla Walla. I'm coming from Seattle. It doesn't affect me. Hebrews says to spur one another to good works to have a corporate responsibility of mutuality for one another. So your life may be great. How about your brother 
in Asia, in South America, in Africa? Are we so individualistic that we don't mind about their life, that we don't earnestly join their prayers for Christ to come with ours? And that was when it hit me that I had drank the Kool-Aid of American individualism, of Western ruggedness so much that I really, as an Adventist, wasn't that concerned about the second coming, that the hope of Jesus really was not forefront in my life because I was doing all right. And yet, when Christ looks at this world with a father's heart, he sees millions and billions of people for whom the restoration of this world is the hope that they have. Christ sees a time when there will be no more oncology wards, where funeral homes will be defunct, where there will be no more memorials. Christ sees a time when those who have had deep wounds given to them because they have had family members do things unconscionably to their body when they were young, they had no business doing, that that stuff will be wiped away and their tears will be no more. Jesus sees that. And this compels him to look and to want to come back. And I think for us as Adventists, the same should be true. As a community of hope, I believe we are this, that as a community of hope here in Walla Walla, or wherever you're visiting us from, that we are aware of the chronology of Christ, that we are engaging in the acts of Christ, and that we are awaiting the return of Christ. This is us, a community of hope, and notice that highlighted in the center of our hope is not what is happening with natural disasters. It's not what is happening in the capital city of Italy. What is the center of our hope is Christ. We are a people of hope who are focused on the Christ and not the crisis. And this morning, you may have walked in here with a monocular vision of being an Adventist or being a person of hope. And for you, that may be that you have a ferocious appetite for all things last day and apocalyptic. And perhaps today, as you have looked at Hebrews, you have heard the summons of God and you said, yes. I should be aware of the chronology of Christ, but I should also equally, even more so, be engaging in the acts of Christ, to be coming together with love, with hope, and with faith with those who need Jesus. And so you add this to this, or maybe you came in and you don't really think about the last, it's, in, it's a bit embarrassing when you hear sermons about the second coming and last days. You've been put off by what you heard growing up. And so now you push it aside and you barely think about it. But what you do do is you engage in good acts, 
in a humanitarian works for your community, and you have also been monocular in your vision. And perhaps today you have heard the call of Christ to also be aware of the chronology of Christ and to know that since he ascended, we are in the last days, that we are hurtling towards a terminal point in the history of the world. And that perhaps you ought to engage and hope and pray along with your brothers and sisters in the world that he will come soon. So you add your engaging acts to being aware of the chronology of Christ. And when you do both of these things, you have a binocular focus that crystallizes the image of Jesus in your life. You become a person that hopes for Jesus and acts with Jesus in this world. And I pray that for all of us this morning, wherever we may be, that the spirit of the risen Christ will help us to accept that as a community of hope, we are aware of the chronology of Christ, we are engaging in the acts of Christ, and we are waiting with hope for the return of Christ.